Hello again, friends, and welcome back to another episode of Real Talks. I'm your host, David Steele, and I'm flying solo again this week. Just a friendly reminder, if you like what you're hearing, you can follow us wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Just search Real Talks. That's R-E-E-L Talks. Just like my name, S-T-E-E-L-E. Also, you can follow us on social media. I'm on Twitter at WannabeRounder, LinkedIn, and on Instagram at DCadudo. And she's on LinkedIn as well, along with Instagram. Her handle is E-L-O-R-A-Z-E-M. Just a couple of quick announcements. Our Patreon channel just went live about a month ago. You can find it by typing Real Talks into the search bar. Let me tell you a little about it. If you decide to support us, we have five different levels that you can support us at. and $40. If you do choose to support us, you'll have the opportunity to earn some great perks, such as your name shouted out before every podcast, cool merch, and if you're one of our major contributors, you'll get a one-hour monthly Zoom meeting with Illo and myself. For more details, just go to the website. I'll leave the link in the description. Which leads me to my next big announcement. We're only four short days away from the introduction of Flashback Fridays, where Ann Cargard and myself will be discussing films from the past. The first film we'll be doing will be Iron Man, and then we're going to be doing every single MCU movie in chronological order. I can't reiterate enough. Hit that follow button so you never miss a podcast. So today is a bonus episode, and we have a very special guest. He hails from Oregon City, Oregon, recently graduating from Cornell University, majoring in diversity and inclusion. His jobs have run the gamut, from doing everything from working in the Department of Human Services to being a wrestling play-by-play announcer for the better part of 15 years. He's even been the general manager of one of the largest movie chains we have in the country, and currently, his passion is the SFLA, or the Starfleet Leadership Academy, where he applies his love of Star Trek to the real world, pointing out examples of great leadership, communication, and more. Here's the trailer. Leadership, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the Starfleet Leadership Academy. It's ongoing mission to develop leaders through Star Trek, to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. A Star Trek podcast told through the lens of leadership development. Subscribe today. The Starfleet Leadership Academy. His latest episode, Playing God, is from DS9, and he discusses experience versus education. Today, I'm happy to welcome Jeff Aiken into Real Talks. How are you, Jeff? Doing great, David. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Tell us where the listeners can find you on social media. Absolutely. So the website is pretty fun, starfleetleadership.academy. Then you can get me on Twitter at SFLA Podcast or on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, and starting just a couple days ago, TikTok at Jeff T. Aiken. That's A-K-I-N. Fabulous. So I had a chance to listen to Playing God, your last podcast from the DS9 episode, and I loved it. You know, I'm a Star Trek fan, but not obviously as big as you. And so tell me, how did this SFLA come about? How long have you been doing this? So I started in the first episode came out May of 2020. So I like to call this my 
my pandemic project, right? Where I think I had the idea for this quite some time ago, but as you well know, it takes a lot of work to put a podcast together. And uh, the moment that I kind of came up with this plan, I was in a meeting and anybody who's worked any level of corporate America before has probably been in this meeting before where it's like the same meeting that you had the day before and the day before that. And the day before that, I think it was like five or six like days in a row where I'm like, is this the same? Like, is this, is this Groundhog's Day? What's going on here? And I got so frustrated. And I actually like, I like slammed my hands on the table afterwards. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I, I want meetings. Like Captain Kirk has meetings, right? Like issue, discussion, decision, and action. Boom, 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 boom. And that's when the light went off. And I'm like, oh my goodness. Is there, so I went home. And I did what I do most every day, and I watched Star Trek. <laughs> but this time, I put a lens up in front of it, and I was asking questions like, is there more to this than just like being awesome? And you know, Star Trek's well-known for tackling big social issues, but I'd never thought of it in terms of, like I don't know, leadership development until that moment. And so far, as the time we're talking, I think I've got 52 episodes out there where I've reviewed episodes of Star Trek out of the 800 and some odd that exist. But uh, every single one has had super, super valuable leadership lessons in it. Yeah, and you can definitely tell the passion that comes through. It's not like you're just getting in front of a microphone and talking for 35 minutes in a monotone voice. No, this is a passionate voice, and you can hear it. And I even love the little sound effects, the the little things against it, or even the small little two-second clips. It's just, it makes it worthwhile. Well, I think it's hard to listen to one person's voice like for a long time, right? And one of the things I learned when I was working as a broadcaster in pro wrestling was like there's a reason like every sporting event you watch has two, four, some some have eight people doing commentary or analysis or color commentary on top of it. When you listen to the radio, if people do that anymore, but back when people listen to the radio, (laughs) right? Like the morning zoo would have like five or six people, you know, on there because the, the differentiation in voices just, I don't know, keeps the human attention span going. And I could go for hours talking about Star Trek and leadership or whatever, but I understand people don't necessarily want that. If they do, I also have a Patreon they can go to. I'm happy to give them hours of that. But those sound drops in there for me do two things. One, I pull actual pieces out of the episode so I can, you know, it's not just me talking about the thing. I want to refer back to it and let the listener hear that. But also, I like to have a little fun and have some laughs in there for people. Some of the references I use are pretty obscure. Some are pretty up there. But it breaks up the monotony of just one voice in there and just, I think, adds a lot of, a lot of salt and pepper to, uh, to what I'm talking about. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I, I'm in the same boat. I've actually tried to do... So this is not my first attempt at, at trying a podcast. So when I actually did try a podcast on my own, it was doing, you know, 20 minutes or 25 minutes of talking by myself in a room. And it's like, okay, then we have long silences and we're trying to talk about something else and long... So... Having that person to play off of, and that's why Illua is so good, and she's going to be coming back on Thursday, is she gives a completely different perspective of how she sees things. And so it's just, it's fabulous. So what was your first memory of Star Trek? Have you been a lifelong fan? 
I have. So I'm not a young man anymore. That's a that's a fact of life that I've be, I've become more comfortable with. So I grew up on the original series, not when it first aired, not when it first aired in syndication, but my uh, my mom was a huge Star Trek fan. So like that's a, a question people ask sometimes, right? What's your like you just did? What's the first Star Trek memory? I don't ever have a period of my life where I don't have Star Trek as a part of it. But one of my first ones that I that I remember really well was must have been 82 or 83 when uh, Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, came out for on video release. Now, for the younger listeners out there, right, <laughs> it wasn't like you waited for this to hit the streaming services and you just had access to it. You had to go buy this video cassette that back in the day cost like 150 bucks sometimes. And that's yeah. in like early 80s money. Yeah. And then you could rent them. And you had to hope to get them. We were one of the families that made the decision to invest in the failed Betamax. Yeah, yeah, we were, were like you walked into the. I don't know if you're if you're this old, but like you used to walk into the video store. One wall was VHS tapes, the other wall was beta tapes. And those beta that wall kept getting smaller. smaller. <laughs> I do. I do remember beta. I never had one, but I do remember beta. I do remember beta. It was rough. And, you know, so so just imagine being a little nerd kid watching Star Trek, playing video games, and being the kid who needed to have the beta player. Oh, yeah. yeah. Made for a rough childhood. But we rented, yeah. we rented Star Trek 2. And uh, my mom let me stay up a little bit later when they were going to watch it. And there's a scene where Captain Kirk has been inspecting the engineering section. And he kind of comes up a little lift. And Scotty's like, don't you want to see everything else? He's like, Later. Like that is such a clear memory in my mind. I remember watching everything and it's like my whole life kind of builds off that, uh, that one Star Trek moment for me. Nice. So one of your earliest jobs I was reading is you were a general manager at Regal. Yeah. Now, the, I mean, so this is an entertainment podcast and this is a movie podcast. I'm a huge movie fan. You're a f- huge movie fan. Tell us. What were your responsibilities as a general manager? Wow. So really, I mean, really, bottom line, my responsibility was to run a profitable operation. But to break it down more, a lot of my time was spent doing facility stuff. So as an example, you go to the movie theater for people who have gone back to the movie theater, right? You know, that's, a, that's like a new thing for us now again. When, what was old is new again. But all those cool just things you see, the neon lights, the the faucets in the bathroom, those things. It was my job to make sure all that stuff kept working. But also, we had to set the showtime schedule. We had to promote the concessions that were going on. We had to promote the new movies that were coming out, the standees and the posters. Had to hire staff, develop staff, performance metrics on all sorts of things. My favorite part of the job, though, was really so this was back in the days of film so i was working for regal back in or like 2000 to 2005 and so we had, there was no digital cinema you know back then and so it was all film and like we it was it's such an art to work with film and we at least in the organization that i was in you know the district i was in here on the west coast we embraced that art you know, taking care of the projector and taking care of the film itself and really making, taking a lot of pride in splicing together a really good print that looked good. And, uh, oh, and then the coolest part of that is you build your print up and then you get to watch it the night before it releases, you know? And we used to do that for the team. We'd put these performance goals in front of them. I mean, if you went to the movies anytime in the last 20 years, someone tried to sell you a combo, right? That's what we do. So we'd say, hey, over this week, we've got, uh, oh, this was, we have Star Wars Episode Two coming out, right? And so if you can hit this mark on your combo sales, 
you can come Thursday night for the pre-screen of the whole thing. Oh, yeah, our combo sales go through the roof. Yeah, it was a blast. Nice. No, so I got to ask, so why a popcorn seven bucks? <laughs> you have no idea, David. It's such a good, and there's a good, well, I don't know if it's a good answer. There's a capitalist answer for it. Well, I, I think I know it, but tell our listeners. So what people don't, I think what people don't understand a lot of the time is that when you're watching a movie, there's a projector up there. The light bulb, the light bulb in that projector is anywhere, depending on the size of the house, between 2,000 and 8,000 watts. And so you pay your bills, and most lights now are like 0.1 watts. So imagine being in one of the big, you know, 500 plus seater theaters that has an 8,000 watt light bulb, and the power for that costs a lot. And then multiply that by 12 or 16 or however many screens there are. Then add to that the insurance that we have to pay to run a business. You know, the, the minimum wage that we have to pay everyone who's there, which isn't a great wage. I'm not advocating for that, but it's a real expense. When you pay the, well, I don't even know what it is now, the 15 bucks or whatever to buy a ticket to go see a movie, the theater you're going to gets zilch. They get none of that. That gets passed on to the distributors and the studios. And there. so, yeah, we literally exist off popcorn money. Yeah. So two things. Number one, your pro- and this is the business side of it, so bear with me for all my listeners. This is the business side of it that people don't really understand. When you go to the movie theater, and what Jeff was just talking about, if you pay $15, that movie theater will maybe see, if they're lucky, $4. So what you're, you've, they've got to keep the lights on. They've got to pay for the employees. They've got to buy the popcorn. They've got to get the insurance and all of these other things. So what they're taking home, essentially, is nothing. Now multiply that. Now when movies like a, a, a Spider-Man No Way Home comes out or we've got Doctor Strange in a couple of days, these are huge because this is more money for the theaters. But the one, the one story, I wrote a story about five or six years ago and it was about how Disney, this was 2015 when The Force Awakens first came out. And Disney actually had a contract with all of the theaters, Regal, AMC, Cinemark, etc., and they took 64% of every single ticket sold. Now, The Force Awakens made over a billion dollars. You can just imagine how much money Disney made. So, at that point, one of the other contentions was it had it stay in their theater, their largest theater, or an IMAX, for six weeks. Now, an IMAX ticket at that point was $20. I'm sure it's like 22 23 at this point. And then, because it blew up so much, The Last Jedi comes out a couple years later. Guess what? It goes up to 68%. So the profit margin for these theaters is so slim that a lot of people, they thought, I mean, pundits and even myself, they thought Regal, AMC. I mean, AMC got lucky because of the whole Reddick thing. But nonetheless, they thought they were going to go under. And subsequently, these streaming services just blew up. And so, you know, now now the other thing is, too, you have this something called the theatrical window. Okay, and this theatrical window is one of those things was, let's say a movie, Doctor Strange, gets released, and it would originally stay in theaters for 90 days. Three months. It's a good run. Well, after the pandemic... People said, you know what? 
and they can't have this anymore. So they cut it to 45 days, only six weeks. Now, Doctor Strange is no longer, and that was a big contention about the Batman. It was still making money and still in theaters, and HBO Max and Warner Brothers says, oh, I'm going to pull it just for streaming. It wasn't like they got any extra memberships. Anyways, I digress, but I just wanted to put that business portion out there because I think it's important when he's talking about being a general manager and running these things, the profit margin is so slim that there's a good chance there was going to, there were a lot of these, and that's why a lot of these theaters didn't, smaller theaters didn't survive. Well, and really, turn the clock back. It's such a fascinating story, and it probably isn't the direction you wanted to go, but I mean, I, I, it's a fascinating business, the movie industry. No, and, absolutely. Tell. And, in the late 90s, when episode Star Wars Episode One came out, it was very similar. 1999. Right? That, oh, my gosh. That was, oof. It was such a thing. But what they really, uh, there's a lot that happened when that case. So similar. It's going to stay in your big house for this long. We couldn't even, we couldn't accept passes, you know, complimentary passes. We couldn't even accept gift certificates for that cash credit only. That was it for the longest time. When we built the prints for that and we did our screenings, they sent people. So there are these big hexagonal like metal cans that the prints get sent in. They sent people who wore like these men in black suits that were handcuffed to the the cans that came in. They had night vision goggles and they would station someone in the projection booth and someone in the theater to ensure that only the projectionist could watch it ahead of time. It was so restrictive. And then episode one, well, we we know that story, right? Yeah. It wasn't wasn't great. And there were these epic, huge films that came out, you know, around that time that didn't get to sit in the big houses for theater. So where I was working, our big house held 550 people. The next house down was 175. So wow. a massive drop, right? So we had one massive one and then more cottage kind of screens around it. And so like I had the matrix in this tiny little thing and I had it sold out for a week at a time. And I had maybe 40 people in my 550 seat house for episode one. So almost every single theater chain at that point went bankrupt shortly after. And that's where it went from Regal Cinemas to Regal Entertainment Group when we acquired Edwards and United Artists Theaters through that. And it's changed so much to where, like you said, when Force Awakens came out, it was a whole it was a whole different ball game. But the last job I had, I'll tell us one last story and then we can shift. But yeah, go go right ahead. But one of the you know the key the one of our key metrics was how much money in the concession stand can we pull in per person that walks through the door. That really shows how efficient we're doing. So in the summertime, when all the big stuff comes out, right, I'd have my concession people pop up a bunch of corn, extra salt. Put it in little cups, and while people are in line for the uh, give out samples, yeah, go. Hey, you know, it's it's kind of you know it's it's long wait out here. Why don't you have some have a little pop? And of course, anybody that goes to a bar or anything knows that that's why they serve pretzels because it, it the salt. You know, I got to get something in my mouth. Can I get a medium doctor. Exactly. Are you sure you don't want a large? <laughs> Just fifty cents wait, more. Can we upgrade? Now let me ask you a quick question. I mean, I have one now. The um, Regal Pass. Mm-hmm. This AMC pass and everything else. Do you think that's hurting the theaters? Because somebody like myself, I mean, I'm going to the theater, let's say, four or five times, which is a sweet spot. Or is it for somebody, let's say, that goes once or twice a month, that's a better option? So I think, and I haven't worked in the theater since those things have come out, but I've got good friends that are still there. 
And I think to answer that question, I'll go up a level more macro and just talk about how much the industry is changing there. Like it's dramatic how much it's changing. And I think what it is with, with programs like that, I think it's a benefit to the theaters overall. Because if you have 10 people, right, let's do simple math. Mm-hmm. 10 people who've bought one of those passes, you are on this end of the spectrum. There's you and one other person who are going for maybe five times a month, kind of hitting it. On the other end of the spectrum are two people that might go once a month. Then you have the eight in the middle that are going two or three. And so overall as a, as a whole, because of that, like I think it's a net gain for the theater overall. And the other thing it does, because I think what streaming services have done for us as a viewing public is we feel entitled to on-demand, right, for almost everything. What that card does is it gives you the feeling, like the psychological, the dopamine release of on-demand. And Well, I can just go. Like, I don't have to plan for it. I can just, I got my card. I can just, so it kind of replicates that feeling for them as much as possible. Yeah. No, I, I got to be honest with you. It's it's very nice having living right down the street from a theater. I plan on going to see Doctor Strange 2 Thursday night. And I plan to see it in IMAX. I mean, yeah, it's at five, six bucks. But the fact that I'm paying $23 a month and I'm able to walk in for six bucks and I get 10% off my concessions, I can't beat it. I'm, I'm making money, so to speak. Exactly. That one movie and your ROI is, is golden. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So we talked about Regal. But my goodness, Jeff, you were a pro wrestling commentator for 15 years? Tell us about it. It's the best job I ever had. Probably the lowest paying job I ever had, too. <laughs> but but I will I will say this much, though. I, and I say it all the time to people. I would rather do something I love and not get paid a lot than do something I hate and get paid a lot of money. 100%. So, so true. Tell, tell us about it. So I, you know, I, I grew up loving Star Trek, and I loved up watching my – I grew up watching my Betamax tapes, but I also grew up watching pro wrestling, right? And, and I, I always wanted to be a wrestler as a dream. And in the late ni- – well, mid to late 90s, I had the opportunity to train to be a wrestler. So I did here locally. I was a terrible pro wrestler. <laughs> You know, an elephant in the room, right? People are, well, it's fake, it's whatever. I'll tell you right now, I have an orthopedic surgeon that would disagree with you about how fake it is. I've had a couple, I had two surgeries on my knee, and I only wrestled for about six months. Did other stuff the rest of the way out. It's so athletic what happens. I like to describe pro wrestling as modern day, like Shakespearean theater in the round. On, you're putting on a show, you're actually telling the age old story of good versus evil, but through the universal language of, of violence. <laughs> yeah. And people get it. But I, I trained, I went and wrestled, I sucked, and uh, but I, I couldn't not work in the industry. So I bounced around jobs for a while as a referee for a little bit, camera operator, ring announcer, and then was a manager for a little while, you know, like the Bobby the Brain Heenan, Heenan Jimmy Mouth of the South Heart kind of thing. That was a lot of fun. But then I fell in with a company here in the Pacific Northwest that was doing local television and started doing play-by-play literally because I was the guy who showed up and could talk. Like through being a manager and a ring announcer, I had some experience like, hey, go do this. And through that, I was able to get some other jobs. And that culminated for me with a company that didn't live very long. It was a, it was a bright a bright and fast existence called uh, P- Paragon Pro Wrestling. Yeah, out of Las Vegas. We were on Spike TV for that. And uh, my broadcast partner, Todd Kennelly, is just an incredible. He's still in the business. He's still calling matches. He's the best. He is the best at the, in the game today. 
he and I got to do throws to Shit's Creek before anybody knew what it was, you know? So it's like, how cool is that? We were there, but it's great. I got to travel the country. I got to meet and work with my childhood heroes. And like, I've got one buddy, you may, people may know D'Lo Brown, who's a WWE intercontinental European champion, part of the nation of domination, but he is a huge Star Trek fan. And we had a lot of late nights in the production room debating the merits of the warp engine versus singularity drive that the Romulans use. And yeah, we got into some deep, deep nerd stuff. It was great. Nice, nice. So you talked about your heroes, your pro wrestling. So do you remember any of your, like, who were your heroes from wrestling growing up? So growing up, Brett the Hitman Hart. He was, he was the excellence of execution. The best there is, the best there was, and the best there ever will be, which is, I, I loved it. And of course, I mean, right, Hulk Hogan. There was that iconic, and in fact, I was doing some writing earlier today and, and brought this up as an example, that iconic Hulk Hogan versus Andre the Giant match from WrestleMania three in the Pontiac Silverdome in front of almost 93,000 people. I mean, just the slam heard around the world on that. And uh, yeah, for, I mean, for most of my life, really up until the pandemic hit, I lived and breathed pro wrestling uh, all the time. It was, it's so great. Did you, I'm just curious, did you happen to watch WrestleMania? I didn't. This is the first, this is the first year since WrestleMania three that I did not watch WrestleMania live. Wow. So what do you think about the state of wrestling today? I mean, obviously the WWE is the perennial, they're across the globe and you've got AEW and you've got all these. So that's a, I don't like it is the thing. And I don't know. So I, I think it's a great time to be in the industry for a lot of people. There's a lot of people who can work full time. Cause like you said, WWE, AEW, impact wrestling, new Japan's doing some great stuff. Like there's a lot of companies doing really good things and giving a lot of people opportunities. But I think at the same time, it was happening before the response to the pandemic happened, but I think that really like kind of, well, it fast forwarded so much of society in a lot of ways. And I think it did the same thing for pro wrestling where, and this is me, I'm old, I'm owning being an older guy, you know, where I grew up, I grew up watching WWF. I grew up watching Mid-South. I grew up watching NWA, Portland wrestling here, you know, where I grew up, where it was two guys getting in the ring and fighting. Like it was a fight. And then you fast forward into the nineties and the attitude stuff. And that's where the shift started to happen, where the, the focus was more on entertainment in there. And I think there was a, a really great period from around like 97 to around 03 ish in there where it's like, Oh, it's good. They match things really well. And it's come to a point now where I don't know, WWE has people writing out every single word that's ever spoken on screen. And I think that just kills so much of the passion. AEW has some really, I mean, incredibly talented people, but they also let people kind of go out there and Go have a good time. Do what you want to do instead of really focusing in and honing in on a story. I watched some AEW here recently, and the physicality was pretty great, but the stories, the the promos, the buildup just felt so contrived to me in a way that wrestling hasn't felt to me in the past. And I don't know if that's a me thing, where I took kind of a break during the pandemic when I stopped working. In the because if you weren't WWE when COVID hit, you you would a best you went on hiatus. So I left. I took a new turn in my life with the podcast and everything. But I think the break, it's either the break and I came back and watched it and I was like, oh, I don't know about this anymore. Or the product has changed to a point where it's just, I don't know, it's just not as legit to me as it used to be. Yeah. I think there was a couple things that have to do with it. I think, I mean, because I grew up watching wrestling and 
some of my I was actually grew up during that attitude era which you were talking about and I think some of the best matches I mean Stone Cold Steve Austin I mean just so that you had the rock you had you know your favorite Bret the Hitman Hart you had Shawn Michaels you had all of these great wrestlers and Triple H it was one of the Undertaker so I mean those guys drove the machine for a lot of years and it's actually interesting so i'm i'm just curious do you happen to know how stone cold got his name the cup of tea right yes like- okay yes you do know you do know for all those wrestling fans out there who don't know steve austin was actually on wcw for many years and he was in a hiatus and they wanted to reboot his character and do something else and so he was having lunch with his wife victoria in texas or in his on his home and so she brought him out a cup of tea, and he's like, this is Stone Cold. And he's like, that's it. That's my new gimmick. So anyways, but yeah, so I think that, I think by far and bar none, The Rock is, and he just, matter of fact, he just turned 50 yesterday. Hard to believe. But he easily, with it, hands down, the best ad-libber on the mic, without a doubt. Without a doubt, the Rock. The Rock is such a great study in, in human. And I'm not going to go and dive into the study, but in the the scheme of what pro wrestling is, the greatest quote unquote wrestlers of all time were actually terrible wrestlers. Like their moves weren't good, but they knew how to tell a story in the ring, and that culminated in a match at WrestleMania 18, or what they called it WrestleMania X8. But it was Hulk Hogan versus The Rock, and these are two people very athletic. Great entertainers, not very good wrestlers. But they put on... I I was in the business at this point. Like, I understood what was going on. I wasn't, like, way in it, but enough. You know, I was a a total greenhorn in there learning stuff. And I was on the edge of my seat reacting to everything they did because they understood how to tell a story and how to pull the audience in and make it part of that. But if you go and watch it with like the sound turned off and everything and you watch like Hogan take the rock bottom, you're just like, oh my gosh, it looks like you just put an old man to bed. This is terrible. (laughs) (laughs) But the match was incredible. It was so good. And now I think there's this weird emphasis on like, I'm going to be this fun, cool character. Also, I'm going to do these wild, unachievable, physical, amazing feats that just don't make any sense in a fight context anymore. You know, I look at people like the Young Bucks that are out there who are super talented, right? But back in the day, Shawn Michaels hit you with sweet chin music. That super kick put you down. You were out. Yeah, it's over. Young Bucks are hitting you with 40 40 of them in a match? Like, come on. Come yeah. on. Yeah. Yeah. So, so Star Trek. So I got to ask, getting back to Star Trek, I got to ask, do you have, and I know you've, you know, covered a lot of the different shows and a lot of the different topics. Do you have a favorite show? Is it Discovery? Is it the original series? Is it, what is it? It's Deep Space Nine. Without DS9. a doubt. Yeah. Totally. Now I'll say... That this week, Strange New Worlds debuts, the, the brand new series, the newest one with uh, Captain Pike at the helm, Anson Mount playing that. And I'm trying not to get too excited, but already I'm like, there's a chance Pike's going to be my new favorite captain. There's a chance Strange New Worlds is going to be my new favorite show. But who knows? Deep Space Nine had seven years, and to me, not only encapsulated everything that Star Trek and Roddenberry's vision was about, but also 
actively questioned it and challenged it in ways that in the end validated it. And what I mean by that, like Roddenberry had this vision of the future where we had progressed beyond poverty. We'd progressed beyond hunger, war, interpersonal disputes. We'd gotten better than all of that. But in fact, he had a rule that there could never be conflict between two people on the bridge, you know, or, or among the main characters. People on Starfleet couldn't have conflict because they were better than that. But Deep Space Nine took that to a whole other level, challenged it, questioned it, ripped it apart. But at the end, like it all came around that all the ideals that Roddenberry held and that built Star Trek off of, they upheld, they validated, and they did it by interrogating it and making it not just like this first couple seasons of The Next Generation were all like, oh, it's a scary sci-fi thing, but we're magical fairies in our magic ship. And we're going to, yeah, it's cool. Also, it's not believable. DS9 made it real. Nice. So I got to ask, who's your favorite captain? Janeway from Voyager. Totally. So I know, all right? I see, I see you now. Nice. Okay. I like that. I like that. People always go Picard or Kirk, right? Yeah. And that's the obvious answer. Yeah, exactly. In Star Trek, there's only one wrong answer, and that's Captain Archer from Enterprise. Yeah. He's a terrible leader. <laughs> but, uh, but Jane, so Janeway has a lot of the same qualities that Picard has. She's diplomatic. She takes the time to develop her crew, and she's got, you know, really, she brings, brings different groups uh, together in these things that, makes, that make Picard really stand out. Well, Janeway does those things, but big difference to me is Picard has to answer to Starfleet Command. Picard has admirals showing up all the time. Picard has a phone he can pick up, essentially, and call for backup. Janeway's 70,000 light years away from her civilization. She could have made a choice in that first episode of Caretaker and said, you know what, we have all these values and principles, but I'm going to compromise them to get us home faster. Instead, she said, I'm going to do this the hard way, because a lot of times the hard way is the right way, and the right way is, is the, the Janeway. No, the right way is the Janeway. Ah, <laughs> nice, nice, nice. But through all that, she stuck to her principles. She stuck to the, the values of Starfleet, even when she didn't have to. And to me, that's a leader I want to work with. So just if you can, tell the listeners a quick example of, because in the opening I talked about how SFLA could be applied to the real world. If you can, try to give us an example of how, or professional setting maybe, how leadership could actually, those values of Star Trek could actually be applied in a professional setting today, if you can. Yeah, totally. So, I mean, really, that's kind of the format of the show, you know, in there where you tune into an episode, and I'm going to tell you, there's no barrier to entry, right? If you're not a Star Trek fan, that's fine. I'll grab your hand. I'll walk you through it. You know, this is kind of what the episode's about. And then we go, and I'll take those things that happened in the episode and try to translate them into a real-world scenario. So a thing that comes to mind for me is there's an episode of Discovery, one of the newer, I say newer things, but it's about to go into its fifth season. Like, it's been around for a while. But in the first season... There's an episode called Choose Your Pain, and in that episode, Saru, who's the first officer of the ship, becomes the acting captain, and he wants to do a good job, right? And so what he ends up doing is working with the computer to kind of give himself a guide. I should do these things and then a grade back as to how, how did I perform, which in our world, in, corporate, in, in the corporate world, in corporate America, that's going over job ex- your job description, your job expectations, copied up with your performance appraisal, sort of a thing. So it's a thing that we have to do. It's a part of management and leadership that nobody likes to do. But through that episode, I was able to kind of construct 
a value-added way to do that by following the example that Saru set for us. So he actually set up markers and milestones and achievement points on very specific activities he was trying to develop and do better on. And so you're able to immediately, like what I explained in the episode is, here's how you take that, here's how you do it in your life right now. And I even developed a form that people can use to help walk them through that. So that's a real like mechanical example. But another example that I like a lot was the Next Generation episode of Family. So Family was after Best of Both Worlds, after Picard had been assimilated as Locutus and was responsible for the deaths of over 11,000 people. Very traumatic experience. As leaders, leaders have to make really hard choices sometimes. We have to decide to fire people, promote someone over someone else. We have to hire one good person when I have four great candidates. Sometimes we have to make spending decisions. Like There's just a lot of hard choices we have to make. And in that episode, I was able to really interrogate how Picard dealt with the aftermath of the decisions that he made as a result. Like he was assimilated and then he made decisions sort of a thing. And so how does he deal with that? And how do you as a leader do that? Now, hopefully as a leader, you're not going to get assimilated. You're not going to kill 11,000 people, right? (laughs) But you might have to lay 300 people off. That's a thing you might have to do. And you can follow the example from Picard and what he goes through. You And in the episode, I'll break that down. Here's what he did. Here's how he did it. Here's why he did it. And this is exactly how you can do the same thing in a corporate scale instead of a, a galactic one. So getting back to your latest episode, Playing God, which I listened to and loved, by the way. So you talk about a couple of things that are incredibly vital to everybody. Education versus experience. And you say, what would you rather have more, education or experience? Now, you're a bright guy. You graduated from Cornell. So, I mean, that, that's something to not shake a stick at. But so in the episode, and I mean, I'll let you tell it better than I will. What would you rather have, education or experience? Yeah, and I think it's some important context. I graduated from Cornell in June of 2020. I did not go there out of school. I had a full life of experience before I went to college. Prior to that, I never stepped foot into an institute of higher learning. And even what I did in Cornell was I earned a certificate in diversity, equity, and inclusion. I don't have a degree. And so I'm I'm somewhat formally trained, barely educated. <laughs> in fact, that's well, my joke, right? Yeah. Like, I barely graduated high school. <laughs> <laughs> so what would you rather have, education or experience? Experience, hands down. I work with a lot of people and have worked with so many more than I work with now. And what I've learned, and I'm, this, some people might not like what I'm going to say, and that's cool, right? I mean, I'm sorry. And you can at me, Jeff T. Aiken or SFLA Podcast, please do. But I've worked with a lot of people who have a lot of letters after their name, right? MBA, PhD, DDS. That's a dental thing, I think. No, I I've worked with a lot of dentists. Well, well, I trust a dentist. I want a dentist yeah. to go get educated. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> true. Very true. But the point is. Yeah. Yeah. If you're going to practice medicine or something, yeah, go get educated. But if you're going to work with people, don't sit there and read a book. Go do it. Right. Go make mistakes. Go try things out. Go hook up with a mentor or a coach who's been there before and can help you through it. But in the episode, and, and, and you and I had a conversation around this, like I talk about, the uh, one time where I, I helped someone through the first time they had to terminate 
somebody from a position. And I tell you, if you've never had to do that before, you are a better person for it. That I've worked for a long time. I've had to terminate a lot of people in my time and it never gets easy, but there's a way to do it. And you're never going to, you'll read it. I could write it in a book and I could sell that book at college textbook prices and I could charge you a thousand or 10,000. I don't even know how much it costs now. I could charge you enough that you're just saddled with student loans forever. I could give you the list of what to do, but until you walk in that room and look that person in the eye, you have no idea what you're doing. So 100% of the time, when it comes to leadership, I'll take experience over education every time. And there is a, there's a couple different examples when we were actually talking that I brought up. One of them was in um, the film Moneyball. And so where the character, I forget his name off the top of my head, but he actually has to send a player down to the minors. And Brad Pitt, Billy, actually says, well, you're going to have to do this at some point. And it's a demotion. And he basically says, all right, so later on in the movie, it comes full circle, and he actually has to do this. And the other major one that I'm thinking of, and you've seen the film, and for everybody out there, it's called Up in the Air. And it's George Clooney, and that's his, that's his occupation. He has to go around, and he basically has to terminate people, whether they're an older in their company or they're not doing a good job at their what their work or whatever it is. And he has a trainee, Anna Kendrick, and he's basically saying, this is how you have to handle this situation. And so eventually she has to go do this. I love, there's one shot in the film that I love, and it's her sitting in a conference room with hundreds of chairs, and she's the only one there. And it basically expresses to everybody that she's lonely. Like this, you're alone when you're doing this. And so I thought that shot encapsulates whatever it is and however it is you're doing. And you're absolutely right. I mean, I'll be honest with you. Like when I play poker, I love playing poker and it's the same thing. When I make, you can play poker all day long, but until you get to a final table, it can totally changes and the stakes go up and everything else. And it's like, it's the same premise. You can do all the education you want. You can have all the doctrines and all the master's degrees and everything else. But until you actually get out there, and even filmmaking, you can do all the prep, pre-production and everything else. But until you get out there on set, it's totally different. So, no, I, I would agree with you. It's The experience is invaluable. I think it was Mike Tyson, right? He says, he's like, you know, like, it doesn't matter how good your plan is. No matter how good your plan is, once you get punched in the face, it all goes out the window. <laughs> yeah. Right? It's like, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, it's just one of those things where it don't get, for all this, don't get Jeff wrong. Education is extremely vital. And it's not saying that education, but what he's getting at is at the end of the day, experience is that much more important because you can be smart, book smart. And then you can be having it done and doing it and actually looking at it. What you were just talking about charging for a lot of money is two totally different things. 
when in the episode, right, the Deep Space Nine episode, playing God, there's this initiate who wants to, it's, this is super deep sci-fi, but basically they have a symbiote that lives inside of them. It's called, they're called the Trill. And he is initiate to possibly accept one of these symbionts. It's a huge honor. And he's been wildly academic, right? I mean, top of his class, very well respected by all of his professors. Part of the initiate process is going and hanging out with a joined trill to see what real life is and have them kind of do an assessment. On the show, there's a character, Jadzia Dax, who is the eighth host uh, or the seventh. Oh my gosh! Wow, you got. I'm going to have to study up on that. Seventh or eighth host of uh, of this Jackson gotcha. being. Wow, it's 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 been a long day, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I get a little bit of grace. Yeah, I, I since I listened to it, it was the seventh for the record. Is oh, Esri who's the next? Spoiler <laughs> alert! Who's the, uh, so she's the seventh on there. So they go and spend time with her or with Dax, the Dax symbiont. Basically, like, one, they can see what life is like, but two, she can do an assessment. And she's like, dude, all this, that's great you learned this. Like, let's go gamble in the bar. Let's go do this thing. And he's like, well, that's not the proper thing. And it, what it reminds me of is there. this is a story I didn't tell on the podcast. But so the organization that I was working with when when we started responding to COVID, right? So like March, April of 2020, wow, that was a wild time to be in leadership because organizations were making these decisions and were shifting and stuff was it was hard during that time and we'd have all these big leadership meetings where sometimes it was them telling us what to do sometimes it was collaboration but what i observed really short into these is amongst my colleagues in this org there's two types of us there's they're the me's i think there's 14 of us who are like kind of on the leadership team and most of us eight nine of us very little to no college. Like we've been working, we've been managers, we've been leaders, we've been doing it. And there's a small handful that have a bunch of letters after their name. And this is one of their first leadership positions. So we'd meet and get this stuff. And as a leader, what I know is you you can hand me a steaming pile of garbage that I have to give to my team. I know how to wrap that garbage up in a way that's going to be more palatable to them. will help them understand. I've been doing this a long time, right? It's like, Hey, this sucks. We all know it sucks. Here's how we're going to make it work. And here's some cool stuff. But in these meetings, so the me's, the group of me in there, we didn't have questions. We're just like, okay, cool. Yep. All right. Uh, now that's, hey, is there a different way we could? No, there's not. Okay. Well, all right. That's it. But these meetings would go on for like an hour and a half, two hours, because all these highly educated people had all these questions that had nothing to do with anything. And it hit me where I'm like, they've read books about this. They've heard people talk about this. They might have even written a paper based on the things they did about this, but they have no idea what reality looks like. So they're they're doing what they've been trained to do. Ask questions. Learn more about this thing. When the reality is, I need to get out of this ivory tower with all these other leaders, go get with the people I work with, and hand them their steaming pile of garbage in a way that they're not going to hate me or the organization for it, which we did. Time and time again. But it's just an example that that's experience versus education right there. I guess the only thing I could say to it is, I mean, and I'll agree with you again. Like I said, I'd rather take, I would rather take experience because you know what to do in certain situations than just sitting behind a desk, listening to somebody speak, doing a, a homework assignment and saying, okay, fine. Okay, I got an A. Great job. But being out there in the field, being doing it, in real time. And that's the key thing. You can't adjust when you're writing a paper. You have to be able to do this stuff on the fly. 
so you actually had started your own you'd worked 17 years in the department of human services and then you decided to start your own company aiken collective what prompted that change so i started the aiken collective while i was with the department of human services and it really started because i was being invited to go speak at places and this is before the star trek like my talks are so much cooler from a nerd standpoint now than they were back then <laughs> like an old star trek <laughs> well thing. you know that that's fine i mean and, and that's and that's great i mean and you know i think the fact that you're able to relate to take something that a lot of people know in star trek everybody it's a worldwide phenomenon whether you've got a Comic-Con and you've got conventions or whatever, and then you were able to take those assets and those abilities that you've gained over the years and then apply those, that's invaluable. I have to say I take what's actually not super complex, but that the world is made, but I, I take leadership, I make it fun. I make it relatable, you know, in there. But I started Aiken Collective with, with my wife, and that's a real key thing. My wife is a powerhouse. She's an incredible human being who can accomplish anything. And so I was get, being invited to go speak I'm at a lot of events and was beginning to generate some income doing that. And that's from a tax liability standpoint, you want to start thinking about business. But also my wife was doing more stuff around some IT things that she was creating for people. And she was also being invited to go speak and be a panelist in a lot of places as an expert in technology. And so we decided to take our marriage to the next level and form an LLC. <laughs> and we did it. We called the Aiken Collective, which sounds very hippie and organic now that we've heard it now, which is cool. We're up, you know, we're up in the Pacific Northwest. It's kind of, that's our, that's our jam. But it's like, it's more like it's the Borg Collective <laughs> in there. It's become this umbrella company that houses the different things we do. So I was speaking, I was doing voiceover. Then now with the podcast, I have a blog, writing a book, getting ready to start doing coaching my wife now blogging as well creating content on youtube where she's speaking she's doing panel pieces and so we have this this business to help us have legitimacy in what we're doing but also it, it communicates that like we're we're not just two people who are like hey we know cool things like we're legit we got a business i file taxes it's a real thing and, uh, and that's really what led to the aiken collective yeah and it's just for all those people that don't don't know content creation is one of the most it is one of the most difficult things in the world because when you start you know i mean it's like this podcast i have you know you're listening to today it, i'm just getting this off the ground and everything else but i'm trying to give you guys as much content as possible jeff he's trying to give you as much content as possible but you got to understand, he's doing other things. He has a family. He has a blog. He has several other things, too. And it's one of those things, once you start to get a following, once you start to get people behind you, they want more and more and more and more. And, you know, which is fantastic, you know, but it's it's a little like, okay, i got to slow down. I mean, but the, in all honesty, that's why I wanted to give you guys Flashback Friday because, you know, I know Doctor Strange is coming out and everybody loves the MCU. And I don't really think there has been a a critic or, you know, a show that's gone through every single MCU movie chronologically. And listen, I understand you've got Netflix series. And I understand there's been TV series for the basis of this show. 
it's just about film. And I love the MCU. He loves Star Trek. And I don't know if we should tell him now, but there's a little um, something we were considering, and it's still in the works, but if it comes through, uh, Jeff and I are going to be doing what's known as, and this is breaking news, this is an exclusive. You heard it here first. Yeah, so we're going to be doing uh, what's called uh, Sci-Fi Sundays. And Jeff and I are going to be watching, I mean, I'm sure he's seen all of them, but he will be glad to sit down and watch them again, all of the new Star Trek, all of the Star Trek films, and all the way from the motion picture in 1976. Something like that. It was yeah, in 76. 76. It was post-Star 70, Wars, so 78, 79. Yeah. yeah, 78 or 79, all the way to the undiscovered country. And then, on top of all of that, we're going to be doing all of the new Star Trek movies. So i got to ask, since we're on the subject, you like the reboots or you like the originals? I like them all, to be honest. Yeah. You know, I think that's a tough question, right? Because I like them, but also there's there's a lot of talk right now about a fourth New Star Trek movie, right. you know, with, with the new possibly crew. coming back, yeah, yeah. Which, like, and I think this kind of sums up my thoughts on them. That would be awesome if that happened. Also, if it didn't, that'd be fine. You know, I think they made three really enjoyable films. Well, they made two really enjoyable ones and one that was okay to watch. <laughs> okay, so which one was the okay to watch? I, I think I might know, but yes, it's, I got was... feelings on Into Darkness. But, okay, uh, so you didn't like Into Darkness. Well, that's, okay. that's, a, that's a bold... I wouldn't say I didn't like... I would say it is by far... It is my least favorite Star Trek movie, period. Okay. Yeah. Okay. It's still Star Trek, right? I still... Yeah. It's, it's it, There's things I appreciate about it. Benedict Cumberbatch was amazing. In, I think it was yeah. so good. I don't think yeah. he should have been who he was in it. I have real continuity issues there. Uh, we'll save that for the episode. Yeah. But, but no, I think that in Star Trek... 2009, the first reboot, the mechanism that they used to like shift it into another timeline was so brilliant because there's no rules now. You do whatever you want. Who cares? Canon? I'm creating canon as we're going. And I thought it was so well done how they set that up. And all three of the movies were a lot of fun. Yeah. So I know you've got a busy life. So I'm going to, uh, I mean, if there are, are there anything, last thoughts that you might have that you might want to uh, share with our listeners? Well, I think the big thing we, we've talked about, right? Catch, catch me on uh, Twitter, SFLA Podcast, Jeff, at Jeff T. Aiken, most everywhere else. But, yeah, you know, two great tastes that go great together, you know, chocolate and peanut yep. butter, the old Reese's peanut. Yeah. So Star Trek and leadership, I'm telling you, like, it's even better than peanut butter and chocolate. Yeah, it's it's just, it's one of those things that's, it's you're right. I mean, there's, you you said it. I can't say it any any better than you did, Jeff, because it's one of those things that. And I think I'll I'll just close with this. I think if a lot more companies like major corporations looked at it in your point of view and say, even if you don't like Star Trek or even if you're not a big Star Trek fan, here's how we want to approach leadership. Here's how we want to approach situations. People, the light bulb will go. I never thought of it like that. And that will make people start to think differently. So, yeah, I just want to thank you for coming on. You've been a blast. And this is definitely, I can't wait for uh, Sci-Fi Sundays. We're definitely going to have to uh, get this up and running. And, yeah, congratulations on your podcast. Congratulations on all your success with the business. And we'll definitely talk soon. Thanks so much, David. Okay, thank you. For David Steele... And Jeff Aiken, 
This has been Real Talk.